Hello folks. In the last lecture we examined what Byung-Chul Han had to say about the pernicious effects that contemporary forms of capitalist technology had on mental health, which led to what he called the burnout society. Han's overall purpose is to render the pathologies of the contemporary world explicit, as well as call for new forms of life which liberate society from what he takes to be the paradoxical condition of contemporary life, more specifically what he names collective narcissism. Collective narcissism names an interesting moment in our cultural development. The we is now a collective I. This week, to explain how this contradictory condition emerged, I would like to look at Han's material about what he calls psychopolitics. Psychopolitics is the effect of moods which besiege human beings as a direct result of contemporary technopolitics. More specifically, I will look at how Han explains what he calls the transparent society which is the primary driver of effective psychopolitics. Secondly, I'll explain how the psychopolitics generated by new technologies creates a dangerous form of emotional capitalism. In the last section, I will explain some alternative modes of life which Hans suggests might provide us with a refuge from the tempest of technological determinism. Part 1. The Transparent Society Han points out that when the internet began to gain wider access, it was at the outset thought to have emancipatory potential. Roughly, the internet was associated with decentralisation, expanding democratic participation, unlimited freedom and possibility, as well as new possibilities of transparency and accountability. It didn't really work out like this. For Han, this initial optimism was illusory. What we got instead was the expansion of control and surveillance. Instant communications and connection were swapped for the digital panoptica of social media. An alarming side effect of this expansion of new technologies was a lack of interiority or a lack of privacy. The individual here becomes completely transparent, out there, in the open. Concealment is no longer possible. Now, I don't think it is the case that Han objects to the idea of transparency in the sense of accountability, what he does object to is the transformation of the human being into a disposition of complete openness. In a world of complete openness, Han, he was really talking about an aesthetic disposition in the old sense of the term aesthetic as in referring to our sensibilities. Here, this sensibility is one where we no longer have any concealment. Nothing is or can be hidden. And the traditional modern division of society into public and private is lost. What brings this openness about, though, for Han? Primarily, it is the move to technological regimes of information. The neoliberal dispositif is one of immaterialism, and we lose any sense of entanglement with the natural material world. The term dispositif is interesting. Dispositif is a term that comes from French philosopher Michel Foucault, referring to the forms of institutional, administrative and coercive mechanisms used to sustain and exercise power within society. For Han, though, Foucault's analysis is restricted to disciplinary society, where power was concentrated in institutions. Now, due to the pervasive dissemination of data, information, and their commercialization, coercion is implemented not by Foucault's violent or coercive means, but now coercion occurs voluntarily. As Han puts it quite strikingly, we are our own inmates. The informational society, therefore, is a new dispositive, one which seeks out ever-expanding means of communicating, which generates more information, which in turn generates more communication, which provides individuals with more options, and so on. 
In short, nothing's intelligible outside of the dispositive of growth, accelerated production, openness and efficiency. The result is a society which only values transparency. Transparency implies a type of godlike perspective. Here, information is contextless, not bound by time, space or place, and circulates independently of any human agent. The consequence is that we lose concealment, secrecy, otherness and interiority in the name of an all-consuming transparency. In Hans terms, and I quote, Data surveillance proves so efficient because it is aperspectival. Digital optics enable surveillance from any and every angle. It eliminates all blind spots. In contrast to analogue and perspective optics, it can peer into the human soul itself. For Handen, neoliberalism, the most recent mutation of capitalist development, is thus less concerned with the somatic, the bodily and the corporeal. It has discovered the mind itself as a type of productive force. Put more simply, our minds can be bought and sold for profit. This new market, the psyche itself, marks a huge shift in how our subjectivities emerge. What is now produced is not the material objects and goods and commodities of industrial society, but rather immaterial things like information, apps and programmes. Consequently, immaterial production means that efficiency, growth and productivity can be harnessed from out of the mind itself. That which is considered productive takes place through optimising our minds themselves, or neuroenhancement, as Han suggests. This is the neoliberal subject we mentioned in the last lecture, or what Han calls the achievement subject, where a self is only intelligible, or even only valuable, really, as an entrepreneurial self. Moving beyond Foucault, the transparent society is not restricted into disciplining bodies. This is the point. At least with Foucault, it was the body that was punished in the first instance. Now, for Han, it is not only bodies that are exposed, but also our interior life itself. Even that domain of our interior life which we do not have immediate access to. That is the unconscious. This is a real problem for Han because interior life slows down efficiency. Our interior mindscapes, at least traditionally, resists immediate communication. Thought, rigorous or otherwise, is after all deliberative and deliberation takes time. The new technologies of power are instantaneous, even quicker than that sometimes. The tragedy is one of self-exposure. Again, we do it to ourselves. The dispositif of the transparent society makes us exterior, indifferent to any other, atomized, only valuable insofar as we accelerate ever newer forms of informational circulation. In Han's own words, and I quote again, ultimately, openness facilitates unrestrained communication, whereas closedness, reserve, and interiority obstruct it. Without interiority, we are exposed to a drive to transparency. The drive to transparency forms a new type of subjectivity, one defined by an addiction to exposure, to showing, or even perhaps showing off. This leads to the collective narcissism I mentioned in the introduction. Our inner lives are no longer inner, but always nudged or voluntarily poured into the public realm of communications. And if we remember, a dispositif is kind of another name for habit. And if we're in the habit of exposing and broadcasting ourselves to the world, then the habit is something that is no longer reflected or deliberated upon, and as such becomes second nature, that is, done unthinkingly. One significant consequence of the habits of the transparent society is of nihilistic levelling. 
if we're all exposing and revealing individuals, our collective life looks diverse, but is in fact really quite homogeneous. After all, how different really are the pictures of the posh meals we share on Instagram? This levelling also has political ill effects. The economy of transparency has an inner logic which quells dissent, difference and deviation. As such, it is a form of conformity. Han gives the example of the invisible moderators on internet sites, online magazines and newspapers and social media groups who police and smooth our communications into a palatable and generally acceptable form. Add to this the public moderation which always takes place when we post anything on social media which is a regulating and approving or a rejecting in the popularity contest of attention-seeking likes. But, again, the point that we must focus on for Han is that this type of surveillance, that is the surveillance where we all monitor each other, is much more problematic than the blunter forms of surveillance undertaken by secret services and surveillance agencies. The new surveillance is a form of what Han calls smart power. Smart power is basically coercion with a friendly face. It does not work through coercion, punishment or good old-fashioned political repression. Instead, it commands in an easy way, constantly nudging and demanding that we share, network, connect, that we reveal what is concealed, to continually communicate our individual preferences, needs and predilections. Another significant consequence of the transparent society is that it undermines our ability to think critically about politics, that is to think politics, thus psychopolitics is not politics at all. Why? Well, because psychopolitics itself is reduced to consumerism. Any political alternatives, oppositions and contests are just one more thing we are buying. Han has quite an ancient view of politics. Politics is about participation, where citizens actively engage in the forming of and shaping of their communities. Psychopolitics is thus passive politics, where the citizen-consumer has neither the inclination, nor the skills to engage in constructive communal action. All folk really do for Han is complain and bellyache about politics, in much the same way we might if we got a bad service in a restaurant or where a product we purchase performs in a subpar way. This is an illuminating point. Politics is only valuable insofar as it matches my own personal preferences or psychodrama. If politics, politicians, political programmes of governance do not map onto my own unique feelings, then I consider them to be inauthentic. That feeling is in turn publicly performed as cynicism. That is, we say they are all corrupt, they are all the same, the government is out to get us and so forth. We should be careful. Han is not doing something as stupid as exonerating politicians or political parties over individual citizens. He is clear, politicians and political parties also conform to the logic of the transparent society. Their manifestos and programmes will have to, and I quote Han here, deliver. In the process, they become nothing more than suppliers. Their task is to satisfy voters who are consumers. The broader point, though, is that digital psychopolitics engenders widespread apathy, conformity and passivity. And if we are cynical, if we are apathetic, then we are passive. And if we are passive, judging political life from the perspective of our own self-expression, then we are just not free. Part 2. Emotional Capitalism The society of total transparency allows post-industrial capitalists to steer, nudge and discipline us in ever more subtle ways. For Han, this inaugurates an age defined by a crisis of freedom. Free will itself is at stake.
This is largely because of the technological innovations wrought by what Han calls big data. Big data is the vast network of commercial and corporate interests that monetize and commercialize our psychic lives. The data self, or the quantitative self, as Han calls it, is treated as nothing more than informational transfer for economic use. Here, the human being becomes a commodity in a completely new way. Big data, therefore, is a remarkably effective means to achieve a total knowledge as well as control of all our behaviours and social communications. Like Heidegger, Han thinks that the primary problem is we are being turned into objects or we are becoming more and more objectified. And if we are a thing, then we are in some sense determined rather than determining. Big data is harnessing new forms of prediction in order to pre-align future behaviours. Han cites the example of Axiom, an American big data company, which promises its clients, and which from Han's perspective, a suffocating wraparound 360-degree customer view. Consequently, our futures are no longer undetermined. They are actualized in advance, and thus our futures itself are becoming calculated and well-regulated. Digital psychopolitics jettisons the very human need for negativity. By negativity, Han does not mean psychic melancholy or pessimism. Rather, he means that it is essential to the human being to be defined by activity, negation or action. Negativity involves the negation or the change of what we are with a view to becoming something else. Without negativity, therefore, we do not have freedom. Digital psychopolitics turns freely made decisions into preordained channels of controlled behaviour. As he puts it himself, digital psychopolitics transforms negativity of freely made decisions into the possibility of actual states. Indeed, persons are being positivized into things which can be quantified, measured and steered. Then, this situation cannot lead us to freedom, since the future is determined, therefore closed off in advance and unable to be taken up in a way that can be otherwise. Without freedom, we are effectively dead for Han. We are things amongst other things. Negativity is what keeps us alive in a meaningful sense. That is in terms of actions or projects we carry out with the risk of losing them. There is a Schopenhauerian element in what Han is saying here. Pain, risk and loss are constitutive of experience itself. Without suffering, life is easy. Without challenge and contest. The transparent society attempts to annul all suffering, replacing it with ease, convenience and the smooth flow of information and efficiency, closing down the distance, therefore, between effort and reward. We want it, we want it all, and we want it now, as uh, Freddie Mercury sang. The philosophical point, though, is that a life of pure ease, pure positivity, is not human at all. It is, in fact, inhuman. What is worse, when we lose freedom, we lose our ability to discern the distinction between emotion and feeling, according to Han. These are not the same thing at all for Han. Emotion is something passive, immediate, momentary. I am sad, I am happy, in the now. Feelings, on the other hand, are constitutive for Han. This means they have intention. They require recounting and narrative. Feelings are complex and temporal, shared, even objective. For Han, emotions are performative and subjective, while feelings are eruptive and subjective. By eruptive, he means that 
when a subject feels, they also think, deliberate, draw out considerations and implications, and, and other persons even interrupt onto and over our immediate emotions. Because emotions are rapid, ephemeral, they're inherently confusing, and they can be exploited, or we ought to exploit ourselves for consumer capitalism. Exploited to what end, though? Exploited to generate a cascade of ever more needs, desires, and affects. Han calls this the shitstorm. The shitstorm is a stream of emotional affects, best illustrated in things like internet emoticons, automated mood tracking apps, a coarse online political conflict, or more sinisterly in physical violence and stalking. The cascade of online affects in turn produces outrage and hysteria. This leads to a very diminished form of the social, or in another context where Han labels online masses as the digital swarm. The digital swarm bars meaningful dialogue and communication. For Han, the instantaneous production and consumption of emotions erodes our ability to have authentic feeling, dissevering us from any communal gathering. With feeling, Han is more talking about something like social atmosphere. Feelings or atmospheres are social, static, serving to gather together, whereas the reign of emotional affect serves to do the opposite, really, to confuse and destabilise. What Han is talking about here is a dysfunction of time. With feelings, we are attuned to possibilities of a situation, a way of being, requiring regularity, consistency and duration, as well as probing out future possibilities. Emotional affects, in contrast, have no duration, but are continually instantaneous and thus fragmented. The digital shitstorms which play contemporary life basically have no perspective, no sense of proportion, respect, and are immediately interchangeable with all other effects. Your average Twitter stream provides clear enough evidence of this with images of cats, tragedies, insults, conspicuous consumption, public confessions, all floating by with equal value. The form of social media consumption itself perpetuates the purgatory of emotional instantaneity. For Han, and I quote, digital networking favours symmetrical communication. Today, participants in communication do not just consume information passively, they generate it actively. No univocal hierarchy separates the sender from the receiver. Perhaps one of the most perverse examples of neoliberal psychopolitics is gamification. Gamification is the deliberate effort to enhance offline services, businesses and platforms through the use of reward systems aped from online platforms, whether social media or video games, with a view to motivating enhancing the productivity of users. For Han, gamification reveals something truly pernicious about emotional capitalism. Emotional capitalism turns life itself into a game. The trick is that Life becomes work. Playing video games rapidly deliver an immediate effect, that is, the feeling of success and reward. Here we see the temporal distance between effort and reward diminished. By incorporating gamification into work and culture at large, the idea is that we can deliver higher performance and greater outputs. Social media would be a good example of this, where the object of the game is to accrue more likes, followers or influence. But we can see this phenomenon in a variety of places offline too. For example, the rewards and badges that a fitness tracker app might give you for reaching a target, or 
say, a coffee shop's loyalty card system, or in education where game dynamics helps teachers turn dry instruction into addictive challenges, or even maybe meditation apps which reward you for meditating more successfully. Gamification retrains our emotional intelligence by reframing our relationship to time. Anything which requires time, which requires patience, lingering, is not compatible with the logic of a game, or at least a game in a digital sense, because games require a patterning of our habits in a preordained way, and thus revel in contingency rather than the distended time of actual play. So even when we lose a game online, we are just short of making progress to entice us back into playing. Slot machines work in a very similar way. Hans' point, though, is that this creates a very frantic, frenetic, micro-focused and anxious and ultimately dissatisfied culture. Part 3. The Rise of the Idiots In some sense, gamification is a travesty of leisure. Leisure, or play, is the opposite of gamification for Han, and something we need to return to. Leisure in its original sense, was free in undetermined time. With gamification, we are channeled, corralled and steered towards the only game in town, which is the motivation for more production. Gamification co-ops leisure and play, really. With leisure, Han is referring more to the discourse of freedom. He does not really mean things like holidays, going fishing, camping or picnicking. While leisure can be all of those things, Han is referring to something more fundamental. He is referring to a mode of living that is not determined. Modes of life free from necessity. Now, leisure is subordinated to consumption, where we all rest in the same way. But Han wants us to retrieve a richer notion of freedom. Freedom is the getting away from necessity. Thus freedom is about deviation, playing with the anomalous and the irregular. It is where we make use of the useless. Excessive consumption colonises the useless, that is, those things we do for the sake of it and not for instrumental reasons. In a quite striking philosophical reversal, real leisure for Han, because it is not dominated by the world of work, the acquisition of means of survival, is actually much closer to ascetism. The things that are most valuable to us are those things which do not require work, money, labour or power. They are those things which we do for the hell of it and which do not require status, a profit motive or for anything to be consumed in the first place. Real meaningful happiness comes from the whimsical for Han where we engage in practices and projects which are not subordinate to an economic imperative. Those things which are normally thought to be trivial, superfluous, gratuitous, silly or frivolous. Put simply, Han is telling us not to forget to have the crack. He says, and I quote here, true happiness comes from what runs riot, lets go, is exuberant and loses meaning, the excessive and superfluous. That is, it comes from what luxuriates, what has taken leave of all necessity, work, performance and purpose. A world not governed by work, duty and responsibility is a utopian possibility for Han. But to achieve that, we all have to become idiots. One of the most political things of all that we can do, in the sense of meaningful politics rather than psychopolitics, is to be idiots. When stated boldly like that, it does sound a bit idiotic, doesn't it? 
to give up responsibility and our solemn duty to be serious, earnest and all grown up, to survive outside of the system that sustains us, would not be very sensible now, would it? For Han, being an idiot is not to be equated with our modern usage of the term, where we take idiocy to mean someone who is ignorant or who pursues folly. Han is again working with a more ancient conception of the term. Idiocy is close to the activity of philosophy itself. The philosopher, like Socrates, is the one who is destined to appear stupid, coming up with new ideas, possibilities, or questioning existing conventions and pieties. There is thus, as there was for the ancient Greeks, a sense that idiocy implies singularity or newness. Someone existing outside of existent, taken-for-granted systems of knowledge. In the contemporary technological world, we need idiocy, because the idiot is the figure who disrupts absolute interconnectedness and complete surveillance. What the transparent society gives us is a society without idiocy in the deep sense of the world. A society where everybody is so knowing, in the know, or information-rich. With the idiot there is a sense of wonderment necessarily attached. The idiot wonders about the way things are and why they are the way they are and how they might be different. In other words, the philosopher. Because of compulsive conformism, digital homogeneity and the full transparent openness that big data delivers, we are at risk of becoming unmoored from our capacity to be idiots. For Han, idiotism represents a practice of freedom. The idiot is the person who is unmoored, uninformed and unallied and therefore is intrinsically recalcitrant to the efficiencies of a network society. Today, being an idiot is the closest we can become to being a heretic, being someone who can deviate from all technological orthodoxy. Most of all, the idiot does not speak. They linger in solitude, silence and remain quiet. And there we can see the religious dimension of Hans' thought coming true. The idiot shows we need to retain the mysterious, absurd and the incomprehensible. In conclusion, with the figure of the idiot we can see Hans' most utopian thought, where the digital order fosters communication without community, the community of idiots, in contrast of the capacity to hold together a fragile and precarious community, a community that stills the digital ravishes of the shitstorm and provides a space where humans can gather, reflect and unleash their natural capacities and talents free from the monstrous order of control and surveillance. The idiot is the person who is free of need, free of the relentless imperative to work, free of desire and free of the solemnity of an informationally saturated world. To be a community of idiots requires all humans to renew, refresh, rehumanize themselves. The idiot brings a stop to compulsion, digital steering and the propulsions big data and the transparent society impose upon us. Only by being idiots, by being singular, can we found new communities of practice which help us overcome the baleful effects of technological determinism. This also requires new rituals which sustain, pass on and maintain a slower sense of temporal life, one not accelerated beyond all recognition. The idiot brings forth a community without communication. The ritualistic are those things which help arrest the flow of technical contingency, stabilising life and revitalising it of its informational emptiness. To be ritualistic idiots, something that would not be easy, is a simple enough thing to do.
once we remember it. All we need to do is gather, according to Han. A ritual is a symbolic practice that brings people together in order to forge an alliance, wholeness. And wholeness only happens in a community where we can find some sense of belonging, as precarious and fragile as that might be. A community is not, for Han, some kind of totalitarian communion. In contrast, it is the activity, the repetitive ritual of making sure our community works, that it continually reinvents itself and draws together, stabilising itself in small, incremental but meaningful ways. Only an idiot can still save us.